The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 7. We're not going to get through the whole chapter. Um, this is going to be the first uh, of two sermons I'll preach on this, on this magnificent uh, chapter, Revelation 7. On October uh, 2nd of last year, 2016, Hurricane Matthew slammed into the little island of Haiti, devastating towns and villages with 100 mile an hour winds and torrential rainfall. Entire communities were completely wiped from the map, just devastated by this storm, terrible storm. Yet, in the midst of that nightmare came a story of surprising refuge. Some residents of a town called Lacadoni had the presence of mind to scale a mountainside nearby their town and find a small cave system in that mountain where they rode out the storm. When aid workers came several days later and saw what the hurricane had done to that town, they assumed that there had been no survivors. But that cave system had been salvation for 550 blessed survivors who had hunkered down there for four days and four nights. Now that true story is an image of what I think about when I think about Revelation 7 and I think about what we've just seen in Revelation 6 and the terrible, devastating storm of judgment and wrath that's about to come in creation in the universe. For the devastation that the sixth seal of Revelation 6 will unleash on the earth is so overwhelming that everyone on the face of the earth will be crying for refuge, crying for a place of salvation where they can survive that storm. Look again at the end of Revelation 6. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave, and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There is a storm of wrath coming. And no cave system on earth will be able to protect anyone from that storm. But there is, in fact, a refuge. There is, in fact, a shelter from the coming storm. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that's the joy that we have in Christ. That's the joy we have in the gospel. We have found a refuge. And we have the responsibility of letting other people know about it. And that's ultimately what this chapter, Revelation 7, is all about. There is that haunting question that kind of echoes down through history, but it hasn't been uttered yet. It's for the future. Every generation has heard it that's read the book of Revelation. That there is a coming storm of the wrath of God, and there will be this universal seeking of a refuge at that point. And there is this haunting question at the end of Revelation 6. The great day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb has come. And who shall be able to stand? And Revelation 7 is the answer to that question. This is an interlude that answers everything. So we have to understand the flow of this amazing amazing vision in Revelation. The Apostle John, as we noted week after week, is in exile on the island of Patmos. 
for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been exiled there rather than executed. God in his sovereignty arranged that this apostle should be on the island because he knew that he would give him this, this book of Revelation. On that little rocky island, he has a vision of a doorway standing open in heaven. And the voice of Christ speaks powerfully, commanding him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. As I've noted before, it's a command that's impossible to obey apart from the sovereign intervention of the power of God. But that's exactly what the Apostle John gets. At once he's in the Spirit, and by the Spirit he can obey the command to travel through the, the, the heavenly realms, uh, through that doorway into the very presence of God, the throne room of God. And the first thing he sees when he goes through that doorway into heaven is the most important reality there is in the universe. Almighty God seated on his throne. A radiant, glorious throne of power and of glory. Central reality of the universe, Almighty God. And there in Revelation 4, we have the uh, uh, heavenly scene of worship. 24 other thrones with 24 elders seated on the throne. And they're surrounding this throne. And day and night, they continually worship God the Creator. And they praise Him for His creation. Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, will, they were created and have their being. So Revelation 4, a picture of the throne of God and worship of God the Creator. Then dramatically the scene shifts in Revelation 5. Right there, God enthroned. In the right hand of the one seated on the throne, there is a scroll sealed with seven seals. With writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel cries out in a loud voice, Who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? But no one is found in heaven or earth or under the earth who, who is worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of Almighty God. Break open the seals. And John wept and wept because no one was found. There was a yearning inside John that someone would be able to do this. John is told, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's victorious. He is able to take the scroll and open its seals. And then I looked and there was a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. An incredible picture of the deity of Christ and a reference to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He is a lamb who gave up his life for the sins of the world. And there cascading worship flows for Christ the Redeemer. From the four living creatures to the 24 elders to the to 100 million angels and every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth. Just cascading, ever-expanding worship for Christ the Redeemer. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Now in Revelation 6, Jesus commences to break open these seven seals. And as he breaks open each one of the seals in progression, events are unfolding on earth. Christ initiates and then things happen on earth. And the first four seals we saw were the unleashing of the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse, so-called. Unleashing a series of escalating trials on the earth. A white rider with, bow, with a bow but no arrows, interpreted as a deceptive peace that is the precursor to bloody warfare that comes next. 
and then famine and death, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then the fifth seal, the breaking open of the fifth seal, shows a heavenly scene of martyrs who had given their lives for Christ. And they're crying out for vengeance and they're told to wait a little longer until the full number of martyrs comes in. And then as we mentioned, the sixth seal brings a cataclysm of justice that's hard, hard, uh, hard to uh, even put into words of the wrath of God. Look at Revelation 6, 12 through 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And the sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? This final haunting question. Who is going to be able to stand when the wrath of God is unleashed? That's what Revelation 7 uh, seeks to answer. It's absolutely vital for us to understand the answer to that question. How are we going to stand in the day of judgment? How are we going to stand when the court is seated and the books are open? How are we going to survive the wrath of God? Revelation 7 is somewhat of an interlude here. In between the 6th and the 7th seals. The 6th seal has been opened. The 7th seal unleashes the 7 trumpets. And they in turn the 7 bowls. And there's this cascading unfolding plan of God. So we have this little interlude in chapter 7. But I think it really does answer the question. Who is going to be able to, to stand? And the answer is the 144,000 sealed from the tribes of Israel... And that multitude, greater than anyone could count, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, they're going to be able to stand in the judgment. Now, the first vision, the 144,000 that we're going to talk about, uh, is one of protection on earth. And the second is one of final reward and protection and provision in eternity in heaven. But they really go together beautifully. So these are the ones that will be able to survive the terrifying day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb that is coming on all the earth. There is a refuge. There is one refuge. And there is only one refuge, and that refuge is Christ, faith in Christ. So Revelation 7 is about how God creates a refuge from his own wrath for the elect. For the signed, the sealed, the delivered, chosen people of God, both from Israel and from every nation on earth. So let's begin. Look at uh, verse 1, Revelation 7, 1. After this, I, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. So the vision begins with supernatural restraint by these angels. These four angels are depicted as standing on the four uh, corners of the earth. Uh, so the image is one of the entirety of the surface of the earth. The four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, are in view. These angels have the power to hold back or restrain the four winds of the earth. Now, the result of their restraining these winds is so that they cannot do the damage that they would do on the surface of the earth, on the land, the sea, and the trees. All right, well, that's what it says. What does it mean? Well, that's always the tricky part, isn't it, with Revelation? You know, I could actually preach this whole book and just tell you what it says, just put it in my own words, etc., and we'd do fine. When I try to say what it means, that's when I start saying this is interesting. But let's give it a shot. 
The big picture is clear. The big picture is vital. The big main themes are clear. We're going to see them again and again and talk about them. The details are interesting. Let's talk about it. What are the four winds of the earth? Well, clearly the four winds of the earth have in some way power to bring destruction on the face of the earth. So the restraint of the winds is so that they cannot bring the destruction that they would bring if they were not held back or restrained. We should also note that the control of winds is quite beyond human power. The wind blows, as Jesus said, wherever it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. John 3, 8. Uh, Not only can we not tell where it comes from and where it's going, we have no power to stop it. We have no power to make it happen. The wind is quite beyond human capability. I actually Googled uh, wind control, and I ended up in some weird sites that that you don't want to know. I mean, there's nothing real. There's no scientific answer to control of the wind. Everybody, you can use wind power, that's a whole different matter. But you certainly can't control it. Commentator Henry Morris said this, The circulation of the atmosphere is a mighty engine, driven by energy from the sun and from the earth's rotation. And the tremendous powers involved in this operation become especially obvious when they're displayed in the form of great hurricanes and blizzards and tornadoes, powerful winds. These winds of the earth make life possible on earth throughout the hydrological cycle, transporting waters from the sea that have evaporated from the ocean and moving them inland and dispensing them by rain on the crops of the earth. So these winds are essential to life, but they're just unpredictable. We have no way of understanding them. They're invisible and, and powerful. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And so there's a sense of the wind being powerful forces on earth that move. So then we go to Daniel 7. Don't turn there, but just listen. Daniel 7, I think there's a strong connection to the image we have here in the book of Revelation. Daniel and Revelation are very strongly connected in a lot of ways. And Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of the four winds moving over the surface of the sea. Churning up uh, the sea and leading to four great empires that come up out of the churning sea like beasts, four beasts, one after the other. Terrible, wicked empires that dominate the inhabitants of the earth. So just listen to Daniel 7, 2, and 3. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So it's a very strong connection to, the, to what we're looking at here. Daniel 7, 3, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So the sea represents the churning mass of humanity in its random, chaotic, demonic rebellion against God. And the four beasts that come up represent evil empires that slaughter and crush and tyrannize. The number four, I think, frequently connects to earth and nations and empires. There's frequently four words, every tribe, language, people, and nation, four winds, four compasses, that kind of thing. There's a lot of four language that connects to the peoples of the earth and the nations of the earth. So there's a lot of that symbolism. So the image here is of powerful wind like a hurricane or tornado that ravages the earth uh, and ravages the the sea first and then empires come up. That should be in our mind from Daniel 7. Now these four winds might also in some way refer to the four horsemen of the apocalypse we just studied. And I think I would only say that except for the similarity of the language in Zechariah 6. The image of various colored horsemen riding over the surface of the earth, bringing judgments of God that was first heard in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 6, 1 through 7. Listen to this. I looked again, and there before me were four chariots coming from before 
two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. All of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits. Another translation would be four winds. These are the four winds of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horse is going toward the north country. The one with the white horse is going toward the west. The one with the dappled horse is going toward the south. And, while, and when the powerful horses went, went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth, Zechariah 6. So there's a sense of an unleashing of straining forces on the peoples, on the nations of the earth that are going to bring terrible judgments. That's the image in Zechariah and Daniel 7, Zechariah 6. Perhaps the four angels represent the four winds of heaven. They're held back by either good angels or held back by demons. uh, And God gives them permission to unleash the wickedness that they want to unleash. It's hard to tell either way. But ultimately they are devastating forces that are going to come on the earth. They're held back. They're held back until what? Well, look at verse 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given, for, given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So it's a proclamation of protection, sovereign secret protection of the servants of God before the, uh, the devastations unleashed. Now, this sealing... Uh, is, is vital. What is, what is this sealing? How can anyone stand in the presence of the winds that are going to blow? The answer is, if you are sealed, you will be protected. That's the idea. Only those that are sealed, the only ones that are sealed are the servants of the living God. Now, the sealing on the foreheads of the servants of the living God is a powerful display of both protection and ownership. It reminds us of an earlier moment in prophetic history in the book of Ezekiel. Now, by the way, as I'm going to be preaching through the book of Revelation, we're going again and again back to the Old Testament. There is really no book, perhaps other than Romans, that so clearly connects back to and depends on Old Testament scripture, as does the book of Revelation. It happens a lot. And so the idea of moving through and sealing certain ones in the society comes right from Ezekiel. Now, at that point in redemptive history... The prophet Ezekiel is ministering to the Jews right before they're going to go in exile to Babylon. Judgment's about to fall on the nation of, of, of Judah for their wickedness and their sin. And so God gives Ezekiel a vision of, of, of a very important moment in the heavenly realms. And that is the sealing of a chosen remnant before the judgment falls. So in Ezekiel 9, these warrior angels come with weapons at their side and they're ready to kill people. But they're told to wait. They're called to stand, uh, called, he calls on them to stand by. And he summons another angel who has a writing kit. An angel clothed in white who has a writing kit. And he says in Ezekiel 9.4, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. So, mark the broken-hearted, repentant, righteous seekers of God, the true ones. Mark them with a mark. So this angel with the writing kit is sent throughout the city of Jerusalem. And he puts a mark on their foreheads of all those that are deeply grieved over the wickedness of the city. 
Interestingly, the mark that he puts on the heads of those people were, was in the, in the Ezekiel text, the Hebrew letter Ta, the last letter in the alphabet. Back in those days, it would have been written like a cross. Just interesting. There's so many little symbols like this. Don't know exactly what it means, but they're all marked with this Hebrew letter. Then after they're marked, the Lord commanded the six angels with swords, follow him throughout the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. By the way, it's a backdrop for Peter saying it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Start at the sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. So the mark on the foreheads is a mark of election, sovereign election by God. It's also a mark of ownership. God uh, has elected and chosen a godly remnant in the wicked city that he's going to spare from the destruction to come. Actually, in many ways, it's similar to the blood of the Passover lamb. You remember the 10th plague in Egypt way back earlier in Israel's history when they were being rescued from slavery to Egypt. And the Passover lamb was sacrificed and the angel of the Lord saw the blood and passed over and didn't bring the judgment on that house. So it's a mark of protection. Ultimately, I think it represents the election of God and salvation through faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So every genuine believer in Christ is sealed, marked with the Holy Spirit. And the sealing is a mark of authenticity and ownership. You belong to God. 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us. And put his spirit on our, in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the sealing on the, on the uh, foreheads implies ownership. You are bought with a price. I own you. I bought you. You belong to me. We're going to see it at the end of the book, Revelation 22, 3 and 4. It says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, the new Jerusalem. And his servants will serve him. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is a beautiful picture of ownership. You're mine. You're bought with a price. You belong to me. Now, later in the book, that's going to be a direct contrast with the mark of the beast. With the mark of the beast. In Revelation 13, the beast, the Antichrist, comes up out of the churning sea. Again, that strong connection to Daniel 7. And this beast, this emperor, comes. And he, he takes over the whole world. And then in Revelation 13, 16 through 18, he forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of his name, and this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it is man's number. His number is 666. So the, the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the, on the hand. So therefore, those marked with the mark of God are delivered, rescued from the wrath of God. But those who receive the mark of the beast are directly under the wrath of God. 
And they actually will suffer wrath for all eternity. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This is no light thing, this sealing or marking. It's just light and darkness. It's wheat and weeds. It's good fish and bad fish. It's the separation of the sheep and the goats. It's just the essential issue here. Now, at that time, those people are going to be directly facing their own martyrdom in the uh, time of the reign of the Antichrist. And it says in Revelation 14, 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints to obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It's going to be a price of martyrdom at that point, but they will not receive the mark of the beast. All right, so that's the sealing in Revelation 7. It's ownership by God, protection from God's wrath. We know who is sealed, uh, uh, those that are sealed, verse 3 are called servants of our God. The ones that are sealed are servants of our God. But verses 4 through 8 goes a little bit deeper. And here we come to the 144,000 sealed from the sons of Israel. Look at verses 4 through 8. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of, tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, Joseph 12,000 and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Total of 144,000. That's the number of those who are sealed. And they're sealed, we're told, from all the tribes of the sons of Israel. All right, so who are these people? Um, Well, right away, we can reject the Jehovah's Witnesses' interpretation of this passage out of hand. They have taught their people for decades that these are the selected, anointed, holy ones throughout 2,000 years of history who alone are spiritually qualified to spend eternity in heaven with God. All the rest of the faithful witnesses who are not among the 144,000 godly and faithful ones according to their theology who didn't make the group of 144,000 will spend eternity in a restored paradise on earth, the new earth. That's their theology. Well, we can just reject that straight out. There are an array of, I think, possible interpretations for the 144,000 from all the tribes. Um, And again, with this, obviously you'd like to have a a higher level of certainty on the details. But I think God in his wisdom allows us to have much more certainty on some, some issues of theology and less on others. There's not any less sense of truthfulness. Truth is truth. But interpretation of scripture is challenging. And some things are just so crystal clear. They're like the, the bright, brightness of the sun, the deity of Christ, the, the unity of God, the, the trinity, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. These things are clear, very clear. But there are other things not so clear. All right, so one uh, wing of evangelical interpretation takes as a, a, a consistent pattern of the futurist interpretation 
so that the events in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 on represents events that will happen in the final tribulation, the final seven years of human history. Uh, a lot of times uh, dispensational premillennialist uh, interpreters see John's ascent from earth to heaven through the doorway as a picture of the rapture of the church and the church is just removed at that point from history. And so, uh, and then everything, the way that this interpretation pattern works, everything in the book from that point on is from the, the moment of the rapture of the church, the final seven year tribulation. So it's future not only to John but it's future to us as the readers of the text. And so you're going to take that, that, that uh, approach, a futurist approach, and again, evangelicals seek as best we can to follow the grammatical historical approach or a literal approach where we can. Challenging in the book of Revelation is there's so many symbols. But literal and futurist interpretations identify the 144,000 as actual Jews who will be converted at that final phase of human history. And who will then, it's not the totality of all the Jews that will be saved, but they are sealed for a mission. They're sealed specifically to be missionaries or evangelists. John MacArthur said this, These Jewish believers and evangelists are the first fruits of Israel, which as a nation will be redeemed before Christ returns. The 144,000 are not all the Jewish believers at that time, but they are a unique group selected to, listen, proclaim the gospel at that time. And this interpretation pattern then says that the multitude, greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Again, taking a futurist view. These are as yet unconverted from the Gentiles. They would, are what they would call tribulation saints. And that's possible. That's actually a, a faithful interpretation. I will say this. All evangelical interpreters see the weight of what Paul says in Romans 11 about the possibility... I think for me the definite possibility or, or the, that it will happen of a future great ingathering of Jews at the end of the world. Zechariah 12 predicts, Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. A prediction of an outpouring of the spirit on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah uh, to the end that they look on Christ, the one they pierced. It's a beautiful prediction. John quotes it in his gospel about the piercing of Jesus. And then even more poignantly, Romans 11, 25 through 27. Romans 9, 10, 11 are asking the question, why are the overwhelming majority of Jews rejecting the gospel? And there is an elaborate three-chapter answer to that question that Paul gives. As a Jew, as a Christian, concerning God's purpose and all. It has to do with God's sovereign election. It has to do with Jacob and Esau has to do with the simplicity of just hearing the gospel. Anyone, they have heard. It's not that hard. You don't have to go to heaven to get it. It's to the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. This Romans 10. The preaching is going out. They can hear. Romans 11, he says, there actually is a remnant that's, that's, that's chosen. There are Jewish Christians now. Paul says, I'm one. And there are others. There's a remnant that God has reserved. But at the end of that whole section, he says this. This is Romans 11, 25 through 27. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Powerful statement. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So many conservative interpreters of that say there's going to be a mass revival among the Jews. And friends, if that happens, do you not see how glorious that will be? 
I remember being in an airport in uh, Milan on my way to Romania to do some ministry there. And there was a group of um, a particular sect of Jews that had wide-brimmed black hats and certain beards and all that. And there were some young boys with them, all men and boys, walking through. And I just looked at them and I, just, I first prayed for them. All Israel will be saved does not mean every Jew, that no Jews will be in hell. That's not what that means. Judah, Judas was a Jew. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that final generation will be transformed. And he's going to take that veil off of their hearts and they're going to turn. And what a glorious thing that's going to be. So I actually believe that's going to happen. Is that what the 144,000 are? Maybe. Others believe that these uh, represent the, the, the totality of all the saved of God. Jew and Gentile alike in Jewish language. So this is the church, Jew plus Gentile, portrayed as sons and daughters of Abraham in that language. So this would be kind of a standard non-dispensational or literalist futurist interpretation. That frankly the 144,000 from every tribe and the multitude greater than anyone can number are the same group of people described differently. Now John MacArthur would say how do you how do you divide the Gentile church into tribes? Like, how, what tribe am I in? I'm from Irish background. Um, you know, I, I don't know what, what your background is. Am I in Issachar? Am I in Levi? I mean, it seems a bit odd. It, it doesn't fit. I think there is a valid theme there. We, through faith in Christ, we are all sons and daughters of Abraham. We are grafted into the Jewish tree. Galatians 6, 26-29 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, listen to this, Galatians 3, 29, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's powerful for me. So, if you're asking which do I think, I don't know. What do you think? Talk to me afterwards. I think either way, God is saving will save the Jews in amazing ways at the end of redemptive history. And there will be a multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation that will be ingathered. And how beautiful will that be? A few more things about the 144,000. The number looks symbolic to many interpreters. What do we mean? Well, the number 144 is 12 squared. 12 times 12. The number 1,000 is 10 cubed. So there's this sense of the perfection or the completion of the elect of God. No one's going to be missing. So that's how some evangelical interpreters take it. They also point out some, I don't know how you put it, interesting features of the, of the listing here. First of all, the, the tribe of Judah being listed first. That's not common. All right, Judah was the fourth of Jacob's sons. The commentators believe it's listed first because Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. The second is the tribe of Dan is not mentioned at all. Left out, omitted. Many commentators say because of gross immorality. But if you read anything about the history of Israel, all the tribes had aspects of gross immorality. It's hard to zero in on it. Also notice the tribe of Manasseh, half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned. But his brother tribe, Ephraim, is not. And even stranger, their father Joseph is also mentioned. So you get father and son in the listing. Manasseh and his father Joseph, and they each have a tribe. So what is the tribe of Joseph that's not the tribe of Manasseh? I don't know. And that's what makes some of this kind of challenging. Especially when the text says that some are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They also say that the Jewish imagery as a whole is fulfilled in the church. 
And I think there's a lot of weight in that as well. Revelation 1, 5, and 6. It says at the beginning of this book, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us, all of us, to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. To him be glory forever. That's just language right from Mount Sinai of what God said to Israel. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words you are to speak to the Israelites. Well, we may never fully settle these debates. But in any case, the people who are sealed by the sovereign grace of God, they will survive the wrath of God. That's who it is that will be able to stand. And there will most certainly be an ingathering from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Look at verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now next time that I preach, which will be in about five weeks, I think, the next time that I preach on Revelation, we'll pick up right here and talk about this great ingathering and how glorious it is. I just want to move on now to some applications and then we'll be done for the day. The first application must be a plea to all of you who are outside of the grace of God to come to Christ. There is one refuge and there is only one refuge. Now you have to ask, you say, refuge from what? You will finish in a few minutes and go out and you'll look around and it'll be bright sunshine and it'll be beautiful and it'll be just normal life. You have to believe, based on the scripture, that judgment is coming. You can't see it by any scientific means. You can't see it by reading current events. You're not going to see it that way. You just have to believe it's coming. If you don't believe it's coming, you're not going to seek a refuge. But if you believe the wrath of God is coming, and not just that it's coming generally, but it's coming specifically for you, and that you're going to have to give an account. It's appointed for you to die, and after that, to face judgment. And that you're not ready to give an account. You need a refuge from the wrath of God. You need a refuge from the justice of God, and all of the works you've ever done that have violated the laws of God. You need a refuge. Friends, there is a refuge. There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And I'm just urging you, while there's time, this is the day of salvation, flee, hide yourself in Christ. You don't need to do any good works for the forgiveness of sins. As a matter of fact, you must do no good works for the forgiveness of sins. We're justified, we're forgiven, we're made righteous in the sight of God by faith in Christ. So trust in Him. Secondly, Christians delight in that refuge. Just thank God for it every day. Thank God that you have found safety and security here. Not in a cave somewhere, but in the beautiful, glorious Son of God. In Christ, you are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. So just thank God for that. Thirdly, be humbled as you look at this. Be humbled by the sovereign grace of God who alone can save us and rescue us. That you have no way to rescue yourself. Just let that humble you. Look how humble they are in heaven. Saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not to us. Not to us. I saw a picture of Muhammad Ali's headstone. And... It said on it, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to get the quote exactly right. Service to others is the rent we pay on earth for our heavenly home. If, if that's not the clearest dis- description of salvation by works I haven't heard in the last year, I, there's not another one. You, you pay for your sins and earn a place in heaven by serving others. 
We Christians know that that is not right. We know that our service to others horizontally can never pay for our forgiveness vertically with God. But if we have been forgiven, then we will most certainly serve others and it's going to flow horizontally. So just thank God for the salvation of, of God's grace. And one final thing. Um, so pick up your card, whatever card you were providentially given. Chase has already talked to you about these cards. Um, this is how it all began. I was praying with Kevin Schaub, and I was thinking about the dog park across the street. Have you guys seen it? A little chain link fence and a little bench there. And it's got little like artistic dogs on the fence. I'm not a dog owner. I'm not particularly a dog lover. Um, as, a, as a runner and bike rider, dogs have frequently been my enemy. But I know that some of you really love dogs, and, and I understand that. But I thought, of it, I thought it's a great place to witness. If you did have a dog, you could bring your dog there and let your dog play with other people's dogs and just sit down on the, on the bench and talk to people about Jesus. It's even easier that you can see the church right up the hill. Oh, I go to that church right up there. It's so easy. So I thought, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we give people ideas for evangelism and outreach? And it's kind of like that old Mission Impossible TV show, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is this card, right? And I was like, just randomize it, just get them out there, come up with lots of ideas, we have 50 of them, and just get it out there, and just let it fall where it may. And you may get a card that has nothing to do with your life at all. So trade it like a, like a trading card, like a baseball card. Find somebody else. Say, all right, what do you got? All right, and then, and if you're a family and your kid got one that, that talks about workplace evangelism, like Chase, that was good. We can talk if you want, I mean, anytime. Um, but, yeah, I'm trusting we're all saved, so... Uh, thank God for that. But, I mean, if your child gets a workplace evangelism thing, what I would suggest families should do is just pool them and choose one that you can do as a family. The easiest thing to do with the card, throw it away or just leave it on the bench. The easiest thing is just leave it there on the bench. But whatever you do with the card will not change the fact that God holds us all accountable to be evangelistically active. That will not change. We're just trying to help you be faithful. We're trying to get you into habits of outreach. It's not as hard as you might think. So this is the one that started it all, and I think I'm going to do this. Take your dog to the dog park and meet other dog owners. Daphne got this one. I asked for it. I want this one. Now, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow someone's dog. <laughs> I don't have a dog, but I'm going to borrow someone's dog, and I'm going to go, now I'm going to get people volunteering, and you're like, I don't know how much you love me or don't love me you could, by what kind of dog you might give me um, and what it might do in my car as I drive to the dog park. All kinds of possibilities here. But... Um, Go and just be honest. Say, I'm dog-sitting. I don't know the first thing about dogs. Tell me about dogs. And, and they will. People who love dogs, they just love dogs. And they'll talk about dogs. And then we're talking. We're in a conversation. And then I can point to the church. Actually, it's, in my case, I can say I'm the pastor of that church. Do you have a church home? This, I, God willing, this is going to happen. I don't have the dog yet. <laughs> but it's going to happen. Now, Ross pointed out that it literally says take your dog to the park. So he says, I can't do this one. But I'm going to, you know, I think it might do it. Here's, here's another one. Yeah, I mean, this is the very one Chase had. You know, workplace evangelism. How did your weekend go? Transition. Look at the card you have. Say, Lord, do you want me to do this? Is there a way? So what Satan does, he puts up obstacles. Oh, you can't do this, can't. Don't. Just cut through those obstacles and do something. And we really want to hear from you. So write on the card what happened. Success, failure doesn't matter. Faithfulness. Tell us the story. I think it was, um, it was a comedian that tweeted this. I forget who it was. 
maybe Jerry Seinfeld, said, if you write a book on failure and it doesn't sell well, have you succeeded? It's an interesting question. <laughs> so if you, if you try and you're bold and, and, the, and you get just totally shut down, I'm telling you, you succeeded. We even want to hear those stories. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had to study your word. Thank you for the insights it gives us. And Lord, we want to pray that you would give us zeal for this multitude greater than anyone could count. Zeal to see them converted, to see them rescued while there's still time, before the wrath falls, to see them trans transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Oh God, give us boldness. Help us not to be self-protective. Help us not to be cowardly or lazy. Help us instead to step up. And if this card isn't it, help us to do something like it. Oh God, I pray that the people of this community will hear the gospel from this church. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.